And in emphasizing work, I also want to mention there, there are things to life other than work. Uh, you know, it's fine. You know, we need to rest sometimes. We need to play some. It's good to have some recreational, you know. But, but we want to have work be a substantial part of what we do. And not just what we do that we get paid for, but just with our life, we serve others and we serve God. In the New Testament, one of the most uh, powerful, most concentrated um, areas of teaching on the topic of work is in the book of Titus. And the book of Titus is actually called by some people the book of good works. Now, Titus was a pastor that was a young spiritual son of Paul. And Titus ministered on an island in the Mediterranean called Crete. Matter of fact, the uh, airliner that just went down went down south of Crete in the Mediterranean. Uh, Lisa and I got to be on that island uh, last October. Beautiful little island in the Mediterranean. And I think it's one of the largest, if maybe the largest of the Greek islands. And the people on that island had a horrible reputation. Um, they had a reputation, and Paul talks about this in the book of Titus. The people there had a reputation of being very evil and very, they were, and Paul said, the people on this island uh, have a reputation for being liars and lazy if you read King James, it called them slow bellies, all right? And, and they just, they just, it was just a rough group of people. And Paul left Titus on the island to be their pastor, okay? They were not known for being honest people, virtuous people, hardworking people. And so it's, it's not unusual that Paul gave Titus, the, the guy who's going to be pastoring on this island, he gave Titus some really strong instructions. And there's five references in what is a very short book, five references about being a hard worker. The first thing is in Titus chapter 2 verse 7, where Paul told Titus himself, uh, he said, in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. So the first thing, especially if we're in leadership, we need to model what it is to be a hard worker. Uh, we need to model diligence, industriousness, etc. Paul told Titus 2.7, in all things, show yourself to be a pattern, or we could use the word example, of good works. In Titus 2.14... He's talking about Jesus who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. They were a very lawless people on that island. And purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. And then in chapter 3 verse 1, uh, Jesus or Paul said, Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities. Because again, these people were kind of wild. Uh, to obey, to be ready for every good work. And then he said in verse th chapter 3, verse 8, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly. That means he's telling Titus, uh, preach this, then preach it again, then preach it again, then preach it again, then preach it again. Affirm this constantly. 
that those who have believed in good in God, I'm sorry, in God, should be careful to maintain good works. These are good and profitable to men. So you don't do them to get saved, but you do them because they're good and helpful to other people. And then finally, Paul says this, this is the fifth reference, and let our people, meaning believers, let our church people also learn to maintain good works to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. So that's why Titus is called the book of good works. And so, you know, one thing that the Bible teaches over and over again is we're not saved by works. Uh, We shouldn't be engaged in dead religious works. We're not trying to earn our salvation. So the Bible does teach a negative side concerning works, but the Bible also teaches a very positive side concerning works and makes it very clear that believers should be, they should just be looking and eager for ways to serve and to do good things for people. In the book of Revelation, one of my favorite topics is the letters to the seven churches, Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Because in the letters to the seven churches, we see a teaching where Jesus himself communicates messages to churches. So if you want to know how would Jesus talk to churches today, congregations, you get a pretty good sampling from his communication to seven different churches. And each of the seven churches, they were doing, some were doing strong in some areas, not so good in other areas. And Jesus talked to them about their individual scenarios and circumstances. There's some unique things that Jesus says to certain churches. But there are three things that Jesus says to every church. Three common statements that Jesus makes to every congregation, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to uh, Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. All seven local churches get these three statements. The first thing that Jesus says to every single church is, I know your works. I know your works. And so that tells me that Jesus, that must be a real high priority to him. That must be a real high value item to him. And let me tell you something that we deal with in the American church today is the American church has been influenced by our culture. Every society, if you look at the society and then you look at the church within that society, there's always some influence from the society that flavors the way that church operates. And that it's, I'm saying it's not the Bible influencing the church, it's society. Like, for example, Corinth lived in a very, very immoral society. So guess what was a problem in the church? Immorality. Uh, in America, one of the core, it's just, it's just woven into the fabric of our society, and that is an entertainment culture. An entertainment culture is wired in, it's part of the DNA, it's of the fabric of our society. So when people come to church, because they're not just Christians, but they're also members of society, they bring in the mindset of their society into the church. And so in society, people are used to being entertained. So when people come to church, they think it's like, you know, we're just a big movie theater. You just come in and watch and 
leave. You, you know, when you go to the movie theater, you don't have any responsibility. I mean, you just pay your admission price, but you don't have any responsibility. I mean, if you if you don't even, I mean, if you're courteous, you'll throw away your drink and popcorn container and things like that. But if you don't, they still have somebody come in and pick it up for you. You know, so, but you know, people, they go to the theater and they don't have any responsibility. It's just, I want to be entertained. Um, when, when you watch television at home, how many of you remember we used to have three channels, you know, and uh, maybe four. How, did you guys have four up here? I, I grew up, I grew up in north central Indiana. We had ABC, CBS, NBC, and then we had some local station that didn't work all the time. But none of this, you know, 5,000 options on satellite or cable or whatever. But, you know, the remote, you know, the remote control. What does that mean? That means it's all about options for you. It's all about preferences for you. And, you know, I like options and preferences when it comes to television. But you know what? People bring that same mentality to church. And, you know, I want, I want to be entertained. I just want to sit and watch the show. You know, they carry that same mentality. And then, you know, we have this remote control thing that, well, you know, if the pastor's preaching on something I don't really want to hear, then, you know, uh, where's my remote? And people, you know, so, so then they, well, I'll just go to a church where they are preaching what I want to hear. And it's, it's all about consumerism and things of that nature. And see, all that, it, it is part of our society, um, but it's not necessarily uh, conducive to a kingdom culture and a kingdom mentality. And so uh, Jesus doesn't want us looking at a church as a place that will just accommodate all of our preferences. Uh, He doesn't want us looking at a church as a place where we can just be spectators and observers. Um, And so we, we have to really make sure that our minds are renewed, that we understand how Jesus looks at the church. And one of the first things when Jesus was looking at seven churches and kind of how are all these churches doing, one of the first things he said was, I know your works. I know what you're doing. And uh, the second thing that Jesus said uh, to all the churches was, uh, he that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So two things. Number one, Jesus wants every church to be a working church. He wants the church to be a place where people come. Of course, they come and hear the word of God. But he also wants it to be a place where people roll up their sleeves and work and serve. Uh, He wants every church to be a working church. He wants every church to be a listening church. And thirdly, Jesus said, he that overcomes. He that overcomes. He said that to each of the seven churches. And then he described rewards for overcoming. And he used different, slightly different words for the rewards. But uh, he wants every church to be a working church, a listening church, an overcoming church. So if those, I describe these three elements as Jesus' core values for for the local church. Because if he said it to all seven churches, it must be really important to him. And so, you know, I, I want to ask myself when it comes to me being a church member, uh, am I a working church member? Am I a listening church member? Am I an overcoming church member? And, and that God doesn't just desire that for me individually, but God desires that for all of us corporately. Somebody once said that the, uh, the church um, 
what they, how'd they say this? The church is a lot like an NFL football game. Uh, 22 people on the field in desperate need of rest and 70,000 people in the stadium in desperate need of exercise. <laughs> now, I say that, I say that knowing that you guys are the people on the field. You know, so, uh, but, but it's an interesting analogy. Let me show you something in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. This is one of the specific things that Jesus said, really, to the church of Ephesus, which was the biggest church of its day. It was the mega church of its day. And Jesus said to that church, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. What he had said is, you've left your first love. You remember that? Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Do the first works. And what he's saying is, work for me like you did at the beginning. When you first were, you know, when he said you've left your first love, the, the Greek there is you've left your early love. The love for me you had earlier. Uh, so a lot of people have a lot of zeal for God when they're first saved, because they're really mindful of the pit that God brought them, brought them out of. But then the longer we're saved, we can just get so comfortable in our salvation. We can just get so casual about our faith. And, um, and, and Pastor John, I know that nobody in Massachusetts would ever say this, or Rhode Island would ever say this, but I've actually had different pastors tell me recently in various parts of the country that they've been having problems with individuals, you know, the, somebody who served for 20 years, 30 years, and, and, and they come to the pastor and say, you know what, pastor, and this is, for some reason, this is the term they've used to the pastors I've talked with. They say, you know what, I've put in my time. I've put in my time. And they're saying that to say, I'm not going to volunteer anymore. I'm not going to serve anymore. And, um, you know, I think when it comes to a secular job and that type of thing, if you're able to retire and do all that, that's great. But I don't think we ever get to retire from serving God. Now, we may, we may change a position or something like that, but, you know, we don't just quit serving God. Our, our title may change, our position may change, but we don't quit serving God. And Jesus said, you know, do the first works. I mean, serve me the way you used to. Uh, serve me with the passion you had when you were first saved, uh, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, the lampstand speaks of illumination, light. It really speaks of influence. And if you lose your first love, you quit loving Jesus the way you did at the first, and you don't do the first works, you don't serve Him with the same zeal, then you lose your influence, you lose your light, you're, you're no longer letting your sh light shine before men. Nobody can see your good works because they're not there anymore. And so, you know, that's what Jesus was talking about there. So, we just want to make sure that we don't grow weary in well-doing. We want to make sure that uh, if, if us working for God is a priority for Him, then it should be a priority for us. Uh, it should be something that, uh, you, you know, Pastor John, I had another pastor here a while back tell me, this is a guy in Arkansas, 
And he said he had two top leaders in the church. They, they both had high positions, but he said their, their attitudes couldn't have been more different. He said the first guy, he said if he ever went to him and said, hey, you know, Bill, um, and, and, and ever, you know, some, once in a while some unique thing would come up, just a one-time thing that the pastor needed some help with. And he'd ask the one guy, Bill, and, and Bill would say, you bet, pastor, you just tell me when to be there. I'll clear my schedule. I'll do whatever I need to do to be there for you. And he'd go ask the other guy. And the other guy, you'll just say, Jim. Jim would say, well, you know, pastor, I don't know. I'll have to check my schedule and get back with you. I'm not sure if that's going to work or not. He said over time it just got to be he knew that when he went to these two guys that one guy was going to say yes no matter what. And the other guy was going to hem and haw and, you know, probably not and probably can't and all that. So, and, and what he said was he said there's really no difference in the two men's schedules. They both have very similar jobs, very similar family situations. What they had was totally different mindsets. What they had was totally different attitudes. Um, we have a, a, a section here in the handout called Partnering with God in Ministry Work. And I said this earlier when we were looking at Galatians chapter 2 where Paul said, Christ liveth in me. But technically, ministry work is not something that we do for God. Rather, it's something that we do with God. And while our labor and involvement are certainly part of the equation, true ministry is done in partnership with God Himself. The best work is done when we are obedient to God and yielded to the Holy Spirit, and He does His work through us. And that's when, to me, that's when I find the ultimate fulfillment is when you serve, God blesses people. I like 1 Corinthians 15.10. Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace... Now, this is interesting. His grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. You know what this teaches us? That grace and work are not mutually exclusive. Grace and work can go hand in hand. See, grace is what we receive, but work is how we respond. Now, if you're trying to work to earn the grace, no, that's not right. If you're trying to work so God would love you, no, that's not right. But receiving grace and letting that grace be the fuel that energizes your work is absolutely perfectly in line with the Bible. I had somebody a while back tell me, literally told me this. They said, I used to be into works, but now I'm into grace. And I thought, that's the most confusing thing I've ever heard in my life. Now, I know what they meant. Here's what they meant. I used to think that if I worked, that God would love me and save me and forgive me. But now I've learned that God's grace provides that, you know, without me working for it. But what we don't want to do is say, I used to work for God, and now that I found out about grace, now I don't, I don't do anything for God anymore. That's, that would be a, a misapplication, probably not what they meant. So Paul said that his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, 
but the grace of God which was with me. Isn't that a fascinating statement? That when we really, really receive grace, it doesn't stop with us. It wants to come back out through us. You remember Jesus said, freely you have received. That's grace, isn't it? Freely receiving. But then what did Jesus say? Freely you've received, now freely give. Let it flow back out through you. Don't be the... uh, don't be the end of it. You're, you're not just there to be a consumer of the blessing. You're really there to be a distributor of the blessing. But to distribute, you first of all have to receive. Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And that statement right there is so powerful because you know what Paul was before he became a born-again Christian? He's a persecutor of the church. And to, let's just use modern terminology He was a terrorist. He was a terrorist. Saul of Tarsus was a terrorist. In the name of his religion, he was going around. He took part in murder. Somebody said murder. He took part in the murder of Stephen. He talked about, Paul gave his testimony. He hurt a lot of people. He was throwing people in prison. He wasn't just randomly if he happened to run across. He was hunting Christians. He was a terrorist. And and then he became born again. He went from being the church's biggest enemy to the church's biggest proponent. And he said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace was not in vain, but I labored. So if you ever meet somebody that wants to say, I'm a grace person, and you say, well, really, do you serve God? No, I just, I'm just a grace person. Well, they're not a grace person like Paul. Paul was a grace person, but he labored. But then after he labored, he said, but it really wasn't me. It was really the grace in me. Isn't that a neat statement? Um, I want to share, I want to share a story with you real quickly. It's one of the most impressive stories I've heard in in a little bit. Lisa and I were uh, ministering in North Dakota, uh, Last year, I think, last fall maybe. And um, this is a church. It's, you know, how many of you know there are not many people in North Dakota? Uh, it's a very sparsely populated state. This is not a huge church. It's a you know, relatively smaller church. And, um, I mean, here at this seminar today, probably triple what they have on a Sunday morning in this church. So... That's their Sunday morning. So, and we've ministered there quite a few times over the years. So I know a lot of the people. Most everybody I recognize by face. I know some names, but recognize people by face. And there was a um, young couple sitting right where this couple is. And a brand new couple. I'd never seen them before. But most everybody I knew from previous years and previous visits. And I noticed in this particular church last year, I did a Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night. Did kind of a very intensive weekend. Um, I mean, it takes so long to get to North Dakota, you might as well pack it in while you're there. So, um, at any rate, um, I noticed this young couple, they were just on the edge of their seats. They were, they were writing down everything I said. They were hungry. They were eager. During some of the services, we'd say, well, if you want prayer for anything, come up, we'll pray for you. And, man, they just 
put their notebooks down, stepped right up. They were the first one to step in for prayer. I mean, these you could just tell these people were hungry for God. And they had this, I don't mean this in a bad way, but they were desperate to get everything they could of God. And so I just mentioned to the pastor, I said, Pastor, I noticed that new young couple on the front. I said, uh, they're new since I was here last, right? And he said, oh, yeah. He said, they've been coming, I don't know, six months, nine months, something like that. And uh, I said, well, they sure are hungry. You know, uh, they, they are eager, really eager to receive. And the pastor said, yeah. He said, let me tell you their story. He said, I think you'll find this interesting. He said, they just started coming, like I said, six, nine months ago. I don't remember what the figure was, but he said, they, they just started coming. And they, they came because they were really struggling in their life. Uh, he said, they have four small children, you know, probably under the age of seven or something like that. I don't know. But four young children. And she, the wife, the mom, had just come out of, you know, they had a, a relatively younger baby and... Um, uh, she had just had some surgery, some, I don't know what it, all the surgery entailed, but she had complications after the surgery, and they had put her on, what is it, Oxycontin, one of the really, really powerful pain medicines, and she got hooked on that. She got addicted to the pain medicine. So you can imagine four small kids, pain from, and complications from surgery, and now you're addicted to a, a pain medicine. And they started coming, and uh, she, her three children would, would all go into the kids' classes okay, but the, the baby, and I don't know how old the baby was at that time, but uh, the baby just w- was one of those wouldn't let go of the mom, and the mom wouldn't let go of the baby, and it was a really, you know, if the mom tried to put the baby down, the baby would just scream and, and all that. And... Um, so the mom and dad always sat in the very back of the church, you know, holding the baby. The mom would hold the baby. And a few of the ladies in the church, you know, kind of saw, hey, it looks like this young lady's kind of struggling. And, and she didn't try to hide, you know, she wasn't trying to perpetuate the addiction. But she told people, you know, what's going on. And, and, and I, I'm, I'm really coming to church. I'm trying to get God's help and everything. And so those three ladies were kind of like, surrogate moms, you know, they kind of took her under their wing and gave her their phone number. Hey, if you need anything, call us. And, and, uh, she'd call them and, you know, they'd pray for her and, and they were, you know, just trying to support her and help her through this. And one of the ladies, um, the, the mom had actually tried to put the, the baby in the nursery once and it was just horrible. And so the mom ended up keeping the child with her. And, uh, One of the ladies said to her, she said, you know what, I I know about your situation with your baby. And she said, I'm I'm an approved nursery worker. And she said, I really believe that you would benefit the most if you could be up on the front row and if you didn't have your baby with you during church. She said, I know that's hard. But she said, let me tell you what I've done. She said, I've gone because I work in the nursery. She said, let me tell you what I've done. I've made arrangements that if you're willing to do this, I'm willing. I've been released from my regular responsibilities in the nursery, and I am available to take care of your baby one-on-one. You, you know, if you'll bring your baby, I'll meet you at the nursery, and I will personally, if I have to hold your baby the whole service, I will do that. And, and, and I'll, you know, I want to do that so you can get up to the front of the church instead of the back of the church. 
and, and you can focus on the message and focus on the anointing, focus on worship. And so the mom said, you know, that would be wonderful. Because part of the reason the mom felt bad was, you know, I'm going to put my child in there and the child is just going to scream forever and everybody's going to hate me because, you know. And so, uh, so you know what? She, she met that lady at the nursery the next service and uh, handed the baby off. And, and you know, here's how I, I wish the story went. And, and when she handed the baby off, the glory of God fell. <laughs> the peace of God just saturated. No, here's what happened. She handed the baby off, and the baby screamed for the entire service. From the time the mom turned and walked away to the time that the mother came back, the baby was screaming. And here's this lady smiling and saying, how did church go for you? Did, you? did you receive the word today? And just smiling. Now, how many of you know, in the flesh, that's not fun. And uh, the mom felt bad about it. She said, don't you feel bad about it. She said, I'm doing this because I think God wants me to do this for you. And, and hey, Wednesday night, I'll be here. You, you bring your baby back. I'll be here Wednesday night. So that went on. And for, I don't know, three or four or five services, the baby screamed from the start of the service to the end of the service. I don't know if the baby at that time was nine months old, ten months old, or whatever, but after four or five services of screaming the whole time, the baby would only scream for 45 minutes. <laughs> only 45 minutes. And then the little kid would look around, see other little crumb munchers on the ground and... You know, kind of want to get down and whatever, I don't know. And, and then, you know, only scream for 30 minutes and then only scream for 15 minutes and finally got to the point where the baby was okay to come into the nursery. By the time the baby was okay to come into the nursery, the mother was healed. The mother was free from the addiction. And the mother was on the front row every service, taking notes, worshiping God. And, uh, you see, Pastor John, you know, we have... I can't think of anything more fun than preaching God's Word. I just feel like, you know, I feel guilty. I love what I do so much. I, I really do. But so many times when, when amazing things happen and people's lives are set free, we, we didn't have, you know, I mean, we may have had a little part to play and maybe we ministered the Word or whatever. But see, if it hadn't been for the lady was holding that screaming child session after session after session, the mother would have never been in a position to really absorb and draw from. And see, that's why labor... The Bible says we are laborers together with God. We are laborers together with God. And as much, you know, we value pastors, we appreciate evangelists, we thank God for missionaries... But pastors, missionaries, and evangelists will be the first ones to tell you, if it's not for all the other people doing all the other services and things that they do, and, you know, volunteering and serving and giving of themselves, uh, then, then what we do as preachers would have such less effect. It's that when everybody pitches in together... And you have people, you know, I have a friend, I just heard this testimony, uh, when he and his wife years and years and years ago uh, were going to a church for the first time, and he didn't know, I don't know if I want to go to this church or not, and, and um, 
uh, he's kind of going mainly because his wife wanted to go. And in this particular building, church that they were going to, they had the main sanctuary. And then off a little ways over, they had a different building entirely where the children went. And um, uh, they pulled up to the main doors, and it's raining. And there's a lady standing under the awning. Uh, and she had, I'm trying to get the story right, she had a baby under one arm, her, you know, carrying her own baby. She had a diaper bag, and she had a crutch because she had a broken leg and a cast, and she was holding an umbrella. And she walks out in the rain and says, uh, she saw they had kids in the back seat. And so she walks out, crutch, umbrella, baby, bag, and she walks out and leans down and says, are you guys here for the first time? And she knew that they were because they didn't know that they had to drop the kids off in another building. And uh, they said, yeah. And she said, well, listen, your, your kids are going to go in this building over here. She said, I'm going over there. She said, follow me. And so in the rain, she's on a crutch going. She walks them over. It's, it's a, I don't mean it's miles, but it's, it's a little bit. And she meets them out at their car, helps them get into the building walks them to each room individually, introduces the parents to each of the lead teachers and all that. And you know what the lady, the mom, said? She turned to her husband, who didn't think he wanted to go to that church, and she said, I want to come here. They'd even been in the sanctuary. They, they wouldn't even know who the pastor was. But you know why they wanted to come to that church? And, and, the, and the guy was blown away. He said, you bet we can come here. Because if people here are, are this loving and this serving, you know, a lot of people would have just looked out, oh, go to that building over there, you know. <laughs> just, but loving people. Somebody who's willing to have a mind to work, to go out of their way to... Show somebody else some great kindness. What I want to do in the just the, the little bit of time we have left, I want to talk to you about rewards. I want to talk to you about how will our works be judged. There is, and if I had hours and hours, I could teach on this in depth. We are going to heaven because of what Jesus did. We are not earning our way to heaven. We don't work our way to heaven. But having received salvation by faith, having received salvation because of God's gift of grace, we will be judged according to our works. Our works don't get us into heaven. But our works, what we do on this earth, will form the basis for how we are rewarded. And when you hear about the phrase, the judgment seat of Christ... That's not to determine whether we get into heaven or not. The judgment seat of Christ that we will all stand before is where it is determined what types of rewards we will receive in heaven. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12, I'm going to read this to you from the New Living Translation. It says, anyone who builds on that foundation, it's talking about the foundation of Jesus Christ, Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, straw. But on the judgment day, the fire will reveal 
what kind of work? Everybody say work. work. But on the judgment day, the fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work, say work, work. has any value. If the work, everybody say work, work, if the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved. But like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 13, uh, or 12, 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. That was from the New Living Translation. So this and many other scriptures indicate when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, it's, it's in a sense, it's not us being judged. We were judged when Jesus went to Calvary. That's where we were declared guilty, and in His resurrection, we were declared innocent, forgiven. We were judged on Calvary. Our works will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. Even if the works we did in this life were crummy, lousy, miserable, and are worth no reward in heaven, the Bible says we'll still be saved. Isn't that good? So you don't have to be concerned that, you know, you're going to get to heaven and Jesus is going to say, now, I know you accepted me and you were saved by faith, but I just didn't like the way you ushered. You know, depart from me. You know, even if we were the worst usher in the world, you know, our works may be burnt up like straw in a fire, but the Bible says that the person will still be saved. Now... What I want to do is I want to give you seven. Actually, I'm going to give you six. I can't remember if in the book we go through seven or not. But I'm going to give you six bases for how Jesus is going to judge our works. Have you ever taken a test in school? And maybe it's been ages since you've taken a test. But where the teacher said, let me tell you, I'm going to tell you exactly what's on the test. Isn't that, don't you like that? When you know what's on the test. Have you, ever, have you ever been in a class where like they had 20,000 word book you had to read and you don't know what they're going to ask you. You don't know how, what criteria. You don't know what the professor's looking for. That's kind of unsettling, isn't it? But isn't it good if you know exactly what the teacher is looking for? Because that way you can do those areas, focus on that, and that way you're going to get a good grade. I'm, I'm going to tell you how to get a good grade when you stand before Jesus. Actually, I'm not. The Bible is going to tell us that. Here's what the Bible tells us when it comes to what Jesus is going to look for when it comes to our works. Number one is motives. Not just what we did, but he's going to look at why we did it. The verse we have listed there is 1 Corinthians 4, 5. And here's what it says. So don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns. For he will bring our darkest secrets to light and will reveal our private motives. God will give each one 
to each one whatever praise is due. See, the judgment seat of Christ is not about punishment. It's about praise and reward. All right? We need to understand that. But Jesus, or Paul said that the Lord is going to bring to light our darkest secrets and reveal our private motives. Now, do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6? You can go back and kind of throughout the whole chapter there, Matthew 6. He said, uh, when you give alms, when you give to the poor, what did he say? He said, yeah, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Don't, don't blow trumpets so everybody can look at you. And, 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 and what was Jesus saying? He said, don't do it in order to have praise of men. And, and because he said, but if, you have, if you do that, you're, you won't have any reward in heaven. But he said, if you do it in secret, then your father who sees you in secret will rewards you openly. So Jesus, and he addressed three areas. In Matthew chapter 6, he talked about giving alms or giving to the poor. He talked about uh, praying. You know, don't just put on a big show so people will think you're spiritual. And, and then he talked about fasting. You know, when you fast, don't, don't you know, let everybody know, oh yeah, I'm fasting right now. I'm seeking God right now. I just want everybody to know how spiritual I am. Jesus and, and, and the point here, let me just say this. The point that Jesus was making is not that it's wrong to pray publicly. How many of you know public prayer is all through the Bible? The point was, the point wasn't whether it was public or not. The key phrase, if you read that very carefully throughout Matthew chapter 6, he talked about people who did it in order to be seen. The question is not whether you're seen. The question is, are you doing it in order to be seen? Because, see, sometimes you do things publicly. Can you imagine going to Pastor John? Pastor John, can you imagine somebody, some, somebody coming to you and saying, you know, Pastor John, I really got inspired Saturday morning about working for God, and, and I want to I I be an usher, but I want to be a greeter, but I don't want anybody to see me do it. How are you going to be an usher that nobody sees you do it? How are you going to be a greeter and nobody sees you? That kind of, I mean, that kind of defeats the purpose, doesn't it? So it's not that it's wrong to be seen. It's that it's wrong just to do it only in order to be seen. Or You don't care about the people. You don't care about making the church better. You don't care about making visitors, guests feel welcome. You're just doing it to be seen. That's what Jesus was saying was wrong. And Jesus said, if your motive in doing things is simply in order to be seen, then you've lost your reward. But if we do things not in order to be seen, even if we are seen, but if we do it to glorify God and help other people, then guess what? There's a reward. All right? So the first thing that God is going to look at is our motives. Number two, and this really ties in very closely... We will be judged by, or our works will be judged by the royal law, which is love. The royal law of love. James 2, 8 through 12 says, If you really fulfill the royal law, according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. And verse 12 says, So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. So the royal law, the law of love, the law of liberty, all the same. 
uh, love needs to be the motivating factor for what we do. Uh, you know, 1 Corinthians 13 is so powerful. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 3, listen to this. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, somebody who gives all their goods to feed the poor, wouldn't they be amazing Christians? And though I give my body to be burned, somebody who gives their life as a martyr to be burned for their faith, aren't they amazing people? Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. There's no reward. Or you can do certain right things, but if you're not doing it for the right reason, you can lose your reward. So we want to have good motives. We want to walk by the law of love. Thirdly, the third criteria for the judgment of our works is faithfulness. Faithfulness. You can go back and read that great parable where Jesus, you know, talked about the guy that got five talents and two talents and one talent. And the guy that got five went out and traded them, invested them, made five more. In other words, he used what he had for increase. The guy that got two used what he had for increase. Now, we all feel sorry for that poor one-talent guy because he just got hardly anything, right? Did you know that one talent, I think that was more than a thousand pounds of silver, one talent. I don't feel sorry for that guy at all. It may not have been two or five, but he, had, he was loaded and you know what he did? He did nothing with it. He just buried it, you know, didn't do anything with it. And, and so nobody got help, nobody got benefited. And, and, um, but to the guys who used what they had and increased what they had, gee, what did he say? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You know, a faithful servant is somebody who's, uh, they're reliable, they're dependable, they're consistent, they can be counted on. A faithful person, you know, they're a person of their word. They show up when they're supposed to show up. They do what they're supposed to do. Faithfulness is going to be a big part of the basis for our reward. Jesus said, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And then actually, if you read the whole thing, he says, you've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. Enter into the joy of the Lord. So faithfulness is huge. Thirdly, and this is important, knowledge. Knowledge will be part of the basis for how we are judged, how our works are judged. But let me just put it real simple. The more you know, the more you're accountable. Jesus gave a little story here. And again, don't, don't look at this in the bad way. Just catch the point he's making. A servant, Luke 12, 47 and 48... A servant who does not know what his master wants but isn't prepared and doesn't carry out those instructions uh, will be severely punished. Uh, but someone who does not know and then does something wrong will be punished only lightly. When someone has been given much, much will be required in return. And when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be required. So the more you know, the more accountable you are. Now, you don't, you don't have to read that in the negative. Oh, I know a lot. God's going to punish me. Now, that's, he was just using an, an illustration they could relate to. The point is simply this. The more you know, the more you're responsible for. Now, as soon as you know that, 
You know what a lot of people will think? Not you, but carnal people, other people. Carnal people will hear that and say, oh, wow, the more I know, the more I'm accountable. Well, okay, I'm just never going to read the Bible again. Then I won't know anything, and then I can just plead ignorance before God. God, I'm sorry, I didn't know. How many of you know God's on to you? All right. So that loophole doesn't work because if you know that you're accountable if you know, and then you deliberately choose not to know, then you've already kind of messed up the equation. You, you understanding what I'm saying? But you know what? We, to know things is, is empowerment. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. But to know things also creates responsibility. We are responsible for what we know. That's why Pastor John and I, and other people who lead at what we call the fivefold level of ministry, if you think that's just, you know, great and fun and all that, what, you know what that means that we have maybe in, in terms of rank in, in the body of Christ? Uh, that doesn't mean we have more prestige, more... Pre- you know what that means? That means we have more responsibility. And that means Jesus is going to judge us more strictly than he's going to judge you. Too much is given, much is required. James said, don't let many of you become teachers because as such we shall receive the stricter judgment. So, you know, we will be judged according to what we knew. Number five, we will be judged, our works will be judged on the topic of obedience. Were we obedient to God? The New English translation of 2 Corinthians 2.9, Paul says, For this reason also I wrote to you, to test you to see if you are obedient in all things. Paul tested believers. He said, I'm writing this to test you. Now, there's some confusion. People, people sometimes think that, well, Satan is the one that tests us. And people sometimes don't know the difference between a test and a temptation. And, and the Bible says in Genesis, it says God did tempt Abraham. And, but in the book of James, it says God doesn't tempt anyone. Well, the, the word that would be better used there for Abraham is test, that God tested him. Let me tell you the difference between a test from God and a tempt or a temptation from Satan. How many of you know God will test you? When God tests you, It is a solicitation to obedience. It is a solicitation to obedience that will result in blessing. Anytime God tests you, you know, and again, don't think that he's always doing things, but you know, like... uh, You know, he told Peter and the others, you know, I want you to drop your nets. I want you to leave your fishing business. I want you to follow me. That was a test. You know, and and, and there are people that that God has said, I want you to, you know, leave your career and go to ministry or whatever. And they didn't do it because I just want the money. I want the security and things. Um, a, A test. You know, God may, you may be at church tomorrow and you look across the sanctuary and you see somebody and, and the Lord puts it on your heart to give them $100. And you're thinking, I have $105 in my wallet, you know. And that's a test, maybe. You know, are you going to obey? If you obey, it will result in blessing. 
Um, and you have to, you know, don't just every time you have a whim, you wonder, well, is that God or is that just me or whatever? I'm, but, but there are times where you just know that you know that God's telling you to do something, and that's a test. But it's always a solicitation to obedience. And when you do it, it results in blessing. A temptation from the enemy is a solicitation to disobedience. And it will always result in unblessing. Okay? So that's the difference between... But God tests us when He... You know, God may speak to you and tell you at the end of this seminar, I want you to sign up and work in the children's department. That may be a test. All right? And have you ever had God test you on something and as soon as you say, okay, God, I'll do it, He says, well, you don't need to do it. I just wanted to make sure you were willing to do it. Have you ever had that one happen? So, uh, but God will test us sometimes. And Paul said, I wrote this to you to test you to see if you're obedient in everything. And here's number six. Here's the final. Quality. The works we do will be judged by the quality. And we find that in Paul's description of the materials that we build with. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Quality. I have a pastor friend who made this statement. He he was talking about... How many of you know the verse where Jesus said... Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And, and a pastor friend of mine said, if we want to hear Jesus say, well done, then we have to do something well. Amen. Quality work. Now, here's one thing. Sometimes people, we emphasize motives so much that we almost forget that quality matters. And quality matters. You know, let's say you had to have surgery or something and, and, you know, the doctor just messes everything up and you end up with complications and infections and the surgery doesn't go right and all that. And the doctor comes in and talks to you and he says, well, listen, I, just, I need to tell you two things. Number one, I really botched this surgery. But my heart was right. I, I had a great attitude when I did it. Well, you want your doctor to have a great attitude, right? But you want him to do a good job. You take your car in to get it fixed, and the mechanic says, Well, I didn't fix your car, but, but I, I prayed the whole time I looked at it. You know, I was, I was trusting God. It just I couldn't fix your car, you know. Yeah, have a great attitude, but do good work. So, uh, you guys have been so good to sit. You've sat through three hours of teaching on a Saturday morning. And uh, we've been talking about kingdom works. And I believe with all of my heart that God is a worker, that Jesus is a worker, that we were created in the image and likeness of God, therefore we are to be workers. I believe that we're following the pattern of Jesus, therefore we are to be workers. And I believe that we are here to let our light shine before men so that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. So whatever you do, if you work for the post office, if you work for, I don't know what all the companies are up here, if you, if you make burgers at McDonald's, you make the best burgers that McDonald's ever had made. You know, if you're, if you're a brain surgeon, be a brain surgeon for Jesus and do it for the glory of God. And um, whatever you do, and, and this is what Paul said in Colossians 3, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God.
Let me pray for you. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for your people. Thank you, Lord, for good-hearted people because I know these people aren't here just out of ritual or tradition. They've made an extra sacrifice to be here at a time when we don't normally get together. But, Father, I believe it's been profitable. I believe you've spoken to our lives and our hearts. I believe you've communicated to each one of us that we are valuable, we are precious, we're important, we can make a difference in whatever we do, and we can all see ourselves as full-time ministers of Jesus Christ. We're here to work do good works in the earth, and we're here to uh, bless other people, and we're here to glorify you through jobs well done, both in the natural world, in the church world, in spiritual matters, in relational matters. Father, help us to be effective for you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.